Jesus stories. Yes. <laughs> Jesus stories. You know, nobody told a story as good as Jesus did. We're going to, uh, this Sunday, this is our second in our series for the summer, Jesus stories. We're going to look at, last Sunday we looked at a whole pile of verses. This Sunday we're going to look at one verse. One verse. It's not going to, this is not going to take an hour and a half, but it could. One verse. Matthew 13, verse 44. Have you ever gone treasure hunting? Oh, there's treasure hunters in all of us, I think. There's nothing that captures the mind quite like treasure hunting. And, well, and I brought a show and tell for you. Because when I was a kid, I, my, my parents bought a, uh, some property in northern Ontario. And right across the lake was an abandoned gold mine. And... You can't find that mine anymore. It's dilapid. It fell over like there was a tower and everything. This was a brick. And it, I, 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 it's, I think it's... It, it, there's, there's some letters on it. But this is like a, for killing, like, like for burning and, and, and for heating things up to extract the gold. And, and here is... This, this is for smashing the ore. This was found on an island in Ontario... That when I was canoeing, and these are some of my treasures. Now, when I was um, a, a teenager, now I can't remember uh, exactly, maybe 14 years old, my, my dad bought a building. It was the old curling rink in town. and had it moved 13 miles. From, he got, got it lifted. Not, not the whole curling rink, just the front of it, because that'd be like... <laughs> Can you imagine that going down the road? But it, it was just the front of it, the entrance of it. But it was a rather large building, right? And Dad bought it for storage on the farm. And, of course, there was an attic. And this is one of my great treasures. This is I found this up there in that attic in that old curling rink. Now, I looked this thing up. This is a numbered print. So I don't know how much this is worth, but it wasn't worth throwing out. That's for sure. This is one of my treasures. I've, I've valued it ever since. And in, in, so some people take treasure hunting to... Oh, I was going to bring another one of my treasures. Uh, a number of years ago, I went gold panning in, in, uh, in, in BC and with a friend of mine and his dad. Well, I was the only one that found any gold. And it was a tiny, tiny little speck, and I hid it so well I couldn't find it. <laughs> and so that's what you do with treasure, right? That's what you do with treasure. You hide it. Well, some people take treasure hunting to new heights. And this is an article I read from ABC written three years ago. And in that article, he said, they said 10 years ago, this guy, he was a millionaire. Um, his name was Forrest Finn. He was a New Mexico art dealer. He had a treasure chest. And it had gold and gems. It was estimated, the value of this treasure was estimated at between 
a million and five million dollars, and he just buried it someplace in the West. And and get this, then he published that he had buried this treasure. And the reason he did this was because he said, too many people are just sitting at home watching their TVs. I want to get people out and motivated to get outside and do stuff, right? And so, and so he hid this treasure. It took 10 years before somebody found it. And this is, the, he wrote a poem and, and a map and there were hints and everything. This is how the poem starts. Begin it where warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk. Put it below the home of Brown. That's how the poem began. And so the lucky treasure hunter beat out perhaps hundreds of thousands who had tried, tried to solve the nine major clues to finding that treasure. He wanted to give people hope. And he says, I think we did that. It was really, really something. Because um, now what, what was inside this treasure? He says there's 265 American gold eagles and double eagles. There's ancient Middle Eastern gold coins, hundreds and hundreds of gold nuggets, a couple of them the size of an egg. Right? So that's got to be worth something. And there's a couple of beautiful little antique Chinese carved jade figurines and necklaces. Wow. One guy. One guy was lucky enough to get that treasure. Now, his treasure hunt launched countless blogs, websites, forums, and Facebook pages, all de dedicated to obsessively picking apart every phrase of the poem and even Fenn's own words for clues. In 10 years, five people actually died looking for the treasure. It took, took five lives. Let's um, read our text. Just again, one verse. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I'll just say that with treasure, if you own the land, you own the treasure. And that's the way it was in that day. If there was unclaimed or there was, there was treasure that you couldn't identify as being anybody, anybody's treasure, then if you own the land, you own the treasure. So I'm going to look at three things. A common interpretation, another interpretation, and personal implications. Just those three things. Now, Matthew 13 has eight different stories. We've looked at one of them last week, right? Now, eight different stories, all in the context of the kingdom of heaven. The sower in the soils, the tares, the mustard seed, the leaven, the hidden treasure, the costly pearl, the dragnet, and the householder. They all start with the kingdom of heaven is like, except for the first one. And But in, in the first one, verse 11 really gives us the context of that. And he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so there it is, the first the first story Jesus told there 
in Matthew 13 really had to do with the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and he just explains to them that the story he's just shared with them, that is the sower and the seed, and the soils actually is what the story was about. He says, what I've just shared with you, while I'm sharing the mystery revealed, this mystery that has been that has been a mystery over the ages. I've just explained that to you concerning the kingdom of heaven. Now, further to why Jesus is telling stories. What were the Jewish teachers, the rabbis and the Pharisees, every student, what were they expecting as far as the Messiah goes? What were they expecting? Elijah followed by Messiah followed by kingdom. That's what, in short, that's what they were expecting. Malachi 4, 5 says that Elijah would come, announce the arrival of the Messiah, and then the kingdom would begin. And so that's what they were expecting. They, were, they weren't complicating it. They just expected that Jesus would be announced by Elijah, and then Jesus would be there, the Messiah would be there, and then the kingdom would start. Here's the problem. In Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah if they were willing to receive it. If they were willing to receive it. And so here, here's the problem. They weren't willing to receive that. Because if they received the fact that John the Baptist was Elijah, was the Elijah of the Old Testament that was prophesied, then they would have to receive that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, where's the kingdom? And so Jesus is teaching here about the kingdom. The Jewish leaders absolutely would not receive it. As a matter of fact, chapter 12, in chapter 12, Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Well, that's not the Messiah then. They have absolutely rejected their Messiah. And so Jesus calls that the unforgivable sin because it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's at this point that Jesus begins to tell stories explaining God's kingdom and what it's really like. And for those who believe that John the Baptist was Elijah, these stories are beautiful and precious, and they begin to receive it, and they begin to get it, and they, be, they, they begin to figure it out. The mysteries is solved. And they know what the kingdom of heaven is all about. To unbelievers, those who reject Jesus as their Messiah, these stories make absolutely no sense. They don't get it. And so they continue to wait for the Messiah and their version of God's kingdom. They continue to wait. Now, in the story of the hidden treasure, there are four details that need attention. The question as to what each of these things really mean will determine the point of Jesus' story. These four things are the kingdom of heaven, the treasure, the field, and the man. I'll look at the, the, commonly, um, the common interpretation first. Uh, now, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus specifically says that the kingdom of heaven is like the story he's about to tell. In other words, the attitudes and characteristics of the story reflects the nature and of the kingdom of heaven. So what, what we see in the story reflects 
what the kingdom of heaven is really like. Britannica defines the kingdom of heaven as the spiritual realm over which God reigns as king or the fulfillment on earth of God's will. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom. It's about the kingdom. The universe is divided into opposing forces, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Two opposing forces. Satan rules one and God rules the other. Continually opposed to each other. They're always at, always at war. Always the good versus evil. The battle is over the control of man who God created in his own image, which means that he has given man the power of choice. You can choose either the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. The power of choice. You are in the heat of the battle. Each of us is. It rages all around us. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers against the spirit, forces that are in high places, Ephesians 6, 12. Satan wants you in his kingdom. He wants you to keep he, he wants to keep you there. And he will use the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, first John two eight sixteen, to lure you and keep you. He will use that. And he does. And he's quite effective at it. Because we're not very good listeners when it comes to hearing the voice of God. God wants you in his kingdom. Satan wants you in his kingdom. And so you see there's a war. There's a battle. There's a battle for your mind and there's a battle for your soul. And God uses love to invite you into his kingdom. Satan uses fear to keep you there in his. But God uses love. In fact, he alone has the power to set you free from the kingdom of darkness. When the disciples asked Jesus, who then can be saved? Right? Jesus responded, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So what, is it, what does it all mean right now? Right now, on this very day, at this very moment, you are living in one of the two kingdoms. That's what it means. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of light. There's only two choices. And you are there by your own choice. God didn't put you in, in, in either one of them. You had a choice. You could choose which kingdom you would be a part of. Now, what about the treasure? Now, again, in those days of war, the Jews would hide their valuables, often burying them in a box in the ground. During the Great Depression, many people did that. As a matter of fact, as banks failed, people began to take their treasures and bury them. Right? And what happens if that person dies that had buried that treasure or had been taken prisoner? The treasure remained in the ground until somebody found it, perhaps years, hundreds of years later. I just read a story this week about a sword that was, that, that, that was uh, constructed in the Bronze Age. It still shined, they said. And they just dug it up in Germany. That's a treasure. 
That is a treasure. Hundreds of years later, and it's found in the ground. Well, during times of war, the Jews would hide their valuables, and it would be found years later. If you recall last Sunday, the kingdom of heaven and the treasure actually remains a mystery to those whose hearts whose hearts aren't of the good soil. They are unable to receive it. And so the question is, what does the treasure represent? At this point, we know that it is worth letting go of absolutely everything to have it, to, con- to, to have it for your very own at this point, right? That, that I- and so it has value, it has great value. What about the field? Now, in the second story, Jesus told in this series of stories, Jesus tells that his disciples plainly that the field represents the world, There's no reason to think that it means something else in this story. The Greek word for the world is cosmos. Cosmos, you've heard that word before. From the second story, but applying it to our current story, a cosmos refers to an ordered system or a system where order prevails. In many uses in the New Testament, the world takes on a kind of negative meaning, like do not love the world or anything in the world. And that's First John 2.15. However, in this context, it is morally neutral. The world. And in one sense, it describes the planet Earth. But in more specifically, it references all the human beings on the planet. This is the world that it's talking about here. Or that's what the field means. And so the field is the world. Specifically, all the human beings on the world. Now, now we come to the man, the fourth piece to the puzzle. Who is this man? Again, the common interpretation uh, links the man to those who find the narrow gate and difficult way of chapter 7. It's the person whose heart is uh, uh, reflecting the good soil of Jesus' first story. It's the man to whom the knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven has been given. The common interpretation goes like this. An unsaved man who has all kinds of advantages thinks that the world is valuable. He discovers that he's a sinner in need of salvation. And so nothing he's tried or has has tried will save him. He finds out that Jesus offers a gift of salvation. This treasure is worth possessing. Nothing comes close. Indeed, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his own soul? And this is what he's discovered. Or what should a man give in return for his soul? That's Matthew 16, 26. And so the man lets everything go that he possesses for eternal life. He absolutely lets everything go. Nothing is worth hanging on to if I forfeit my soul. That's treasure. That's the treasure. Right? And so, so the man, and, and as Paul says in Philippians 3.8, for his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. When you think about what you have to give up 
in this short life compared to what you gain in eternity, it's not a big price, is it? To what you have to give up in this life compared to all of eternity. Nothing. It's a treasure worth giving everything else up for. Well, let's just say that it's worth it. It's not a bad interpretation. But it's not the only interpretation. I want to go to this other interpretation, and this is my favorite. If you think about it, this interpretation doesn't really address the field or the man. The first interpretation. It doesn't really address those images adequately. At least not in my mind. And so, so, so let's look at another interpretation. What, what if Jesus is the man in the story? What if Jesus is the man? Oh boy. Wouldn't that change everything? The field is the world. Jesus found this treasure in the field that is in the world. Jesus sold everything that he had in order to purchase the field. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Let me read that, if I can find it. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In the form of God. Became a servant. He died. Jesus died for the sins of the entire world. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to save every person. It was sufficient. But is the entire world saved? No. We have choice. It was effective for those that chose to follow Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for all. It was effective for those that put their faith in him. Who is the treasure in this interpretation then? Think about that. Who is the treasure? those who have trusted Jesus. That blows my mind. Either way you look at it, this story, the practical impl implications are kind of the same, either interpretation you use. Both interpretations have the support of the rest of Scripture, I'll say that. Neither, I, I don't think either one is wrong or right. I think both are good interpretations. Maybe they both apply but you think about the first interpretation. You are the man or the woman in the story. Perhaps you weren't even looking for treasure in the world, in the field. Maybe you weren't looking for it. You heard the gospel. It made sense to you. Jesus, the word became that who has become flesh, came a long way to save you. You've been bound in the chains of sin long enough. You've tried to make sense of your life and know that there's got to be more. You know that you were created for a purpose, but that's not what the world teaches. You were an accident, the world says. 
you kind of just came out of the goo. Put on a suit. There you were after billions of years. But you know that's not adequate. Satan uses fear or pleasure or entertainment or relationships. And you've fallen for those lies long enough. There is freedom in Christ alone. And so you give it all up to possess Jesus Christ. Besides, anything the world has to offer is severely lacking. If anyone loves the world, the love of the, world, the, love of the Father is not in him. So you have your treasure. It's Jesus. And you're secure, you're satisfied, and you're saved. That's not a bad interpretation. But I love the second interpretation. Jesus is the man. Jesus comes to the field on purpose. Jesus came to the field on purpose to look for treasure. But you are God's chosen treasure, priests who are kings, a spiritual nation set apart as God's devoted ones. He called you out of darkness to experience his marvelous light, and now he claims you as his very own. He did this so that you would broadcast his glorious wonders throughout the world. For at one time you were not God's people, but now you are. At one time you knew nothing of God's mercy because you hadn't received it yet, but now you're drenched with it. That is 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. You are God's treasure. Doesn't that do something for you? You are God's treasure. Jesus came a long way for you. The Hebrew word for this word treasure is segula, and it means special possession. That word is found in the Old Testament where it refers to the nation of Israel, but now that same word is pictured here in the New Testament through Peter. He describes the people of God, those who have received mercy, a collection now beyond the nation of Israel. In other words, he's talking about those who have believed in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, and he writes, but you are God's special possession. You are God's treasure. Imagine that. Imagine the king of the universe, the king sitting on his throne. The great and powerful king of heaven considers you among his special treasures. And in his throne room, he, he, he takes out his, his special treasure. He opens up his treasure box to to peer, and, and, and what do you do with your treasure? You know, I've, I've got all of this stuff in special places so I can enjoy it and see it and go, yeah, I was there. I, 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 I took that. That's some of my treasure. I could have brought loads and loads of treasure. I don't know what I'm going to do with it all. But when you have something, you don't neglect it. When something is treasured, you don't neglect it. You take it out often and you look at it and you... I, I was given... I, I could have brought a watch that my great-grandmother had given me. 
I could have brought my grandfather's railway watch that he gave me. Those are treasures. And you don't neglect your treasure. He has rescued you from the grip of sin and death. He claims you as his very own. The king's voice says, This is my treasure. I love this one. This one is mine. Can you say that? I am God's treasure. I am God's treasure. Say it. I am God's treasure. Now, what are the personal implications? How do I respond? Jesus gave everything for me because I am his treasure. I let go of everything that I might gain. Christ, my treasure. Either way you take it, Jesus' story is amazing. It's a simple story. It's a small story. One verse. And, it, and yet it has profound implications. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. How can I help but love you back in the same way? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that, that you went through Jesus. You went so far for us. And that you consider us your treasure. That blows me away. Father, how can I help but respond? You are my treasure. Help me to live it. Help me not to neglect you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this benediction, may the strength of God pilot us. May the wisdom of God instruct us. May the hand of God protect us. May the word of God direct us be always ours this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen. God bless you.